folks, uh, and welcome to uh, a warm but wet Monday um, evening in Lincoln. Uh, this is a, another round of the 1201 Teams podcast. Um, you, you've got your, me here, Bradley, um, in Lincoln, uh, and we've, we've got Callum as well, Callum Roper. Hi there, I'm in a rather warmer South London and there's no rain down here. It's all right for some. My weather app's been telling me for a week we're going to have rain, um, and it's not happened, and now it has, so I can't complain. Uh, <laughs> we're also joined by Ollie. Hello, everyone. And we're finally joined by Callum Watt. Good evening. So the first news story we're going to talk about today is, as, I, as I'm sure no one listening will be surprised to hear, uh, the absolute disaster that has been the A-level results. Um, although just before we came on air, there, there is a silver lining to the story. Um, so th- this is the story that, um, g- given the extraordinary circumstances uh, this year, uh, m- many elements of the A-level examination um, were not able to take place. Uh, so uh, this left the exam boards um, and, and the government ultimately in, in a bit of a tricky spot to try and figure out uh, how, how to assess students' work um, and, and what grades to, to give them. Uh, one option, and this is, by the way, a, a story that unfolded in Scotland a week earlier. Um, so, so it's not as if it, no one could see it coming over the hill for, for England um, last Thursday when the results came out. So the, the options before the government were to, to go with the pr- predicted grades um, that had primarily been formed by the students' teachers um, which some um, suggested would, would be overly optimistic, or they they could go um, with a, an, another average. I, I think this, someone jump in if, if you can correct me, but I think the, the other system that, that had many students um, on significantly lower grades than their teacher expectation was partly based on, on uh, rolling averages from what their school had achieved in, in previous years. Um, and the government went for that latter option um, to the dismay of, of many students and their parents and, and their school teachers, um, which, which saw somewhere in the region of 40% of students um, downgraded from what their predicted grades were going to be. Um, Callum, Roper, do you, do you want to come in on this? What, what are your thoughts? Did, did the government, I mean, the government's now switched track and, and they're, they're going with the, um, with the teachers' predicted grades now after both Northern Ireland and Wales um, came out earlier on in the day saying that that's what they were going to do. And, and obviously after a U-turn by the Scottish government um, last week as well. So, Callum, have have they been right to do a U-turn? What do you think? I mean, they've been absolutely correct to do a, a U-turn. Sorry, I think that the issue that we found is that they've had five months to prepare for this. And it seems like they've drawn it on, on a fag packet the night before the results were released. I, th- I seriously think that they've completely copped it up. And just remember earlier today and, and throughout the last week, we've had the same narrative from the government saying that they're not going to U-turn. So we've got people for the last week planning their futures, looking for alternative universities, only to be told that actually their first choice might have been something they could have gone to. And I was watching the news as this as this was breaking and some students they couldn't get into their first choice even though they would now get the grades if the current if the current u-turn stands there's no guarantee that they won't u-turn on a u-turn or come up with some strange new system but they might not still get the university that they they deserve and the university that they would have achieved because those places are now full 
it's been five five days since the grades have been released and students have been left up in the air. And I think this isn't just a, a problem with, with around COVID. This is a problem with an exam-based system. I think that by ha having such a high reliance on exams and a disregard for coursework and for student um, input and work with their teachers, it's just a system that's a shambles. And we found out really how poorly it can perform when that element of exams is removed and that we left on predictions. So I think it's welcome that there's been a U-turn. The U-turn itself should have come a lot, lot sooner. I think that the rumblings from Scotland should have made the government and uh, Ofqual realise that we've got a big problem on our hands and they should have been acting a lot sooner. And I think, personally, Gavin Willinson's got to go. Yeah, I, I did see uh, some amusing posts. There were there were some protests organised, weren't there, um, on, on the Friday. So the results came out on the Thursday. And I think in London and in some other places, there were quite a lot of um, protests, partly organised by teachers, actually, um, in solidarity with their students. Um, and I, I did see a number of posters with, with Gavin Williamson's face on, um, talking about, um, you know, pr promoted beyond his ability, um, which is obviously the slogan that some um, Tories were coming out with as to why they weren't going with the teachers' predicted grades. Um, I, I did think that, that was quite a nice way to turn that phrase back around on the Tories. Um, but I, I think you're right, Callum. I, I think, you know, I, I remember it, it's a distant, murky past now, but I do remember receiving my A-levels. And, and, and it's all it's all quite a fast-paced thing, isn't it? It all happens quite quickly, really. Certainly it did for me. Um, in, you know, you, you get you get your grades and then you quickly look, you know, can these get me into my first? Can they get me into my second ch choice institution? And, and th there is a sense of urgency about it. There is a bit of a rush about it. Um, so I imagine a lot of students, you're quite right, places might be filling up for certain courses already. But on the flip side, students that haven't got the grades they wanted for their first choice might have in desperation rushed to, to get into somewhere else um, through clearing or, or something. And, and they've already accepted a place at an institution that, that wasn't their first choice. Whereas now this U-turn's come around, they might have actually been able to get into that first choice. Um, so I, I don't know what scope there is for those students to now decline an offer they may have just accepted and, and all the rest of it. Um, but but it's come far too late. You know, five days is, is quite a long time when it comes to the world of, of clearing, I think. Um, Ollie, what do you think? Should, should Gavin Williamson resign over this? Um, I am of the opinion he absolutely should resign. I mean, there was the the rhetoric that he, uh, he made in a statement a few days ago, which was about, um, it was along the lines of, um, he, he didn't want a lot of students to get jobs outside of their ability which I'm sure he knows much about as a government minister. But I just, I, I just think this is a government that, that holds young people in, in utter contempt, uh, but only and especially young people from less well-off areas. Um, it, it is, this, is, this is a process which requires like an enormous amount of, of preparation on part of the students and the universities. And to, to leave it up in the air for five days like they have, I mean, it's just an utter cock-up. I, I really think it should go... I think what we need now is to uh, to ensure that um, unfair BTEC downgrades are corrected as well, which is another system which is still quite up in the air. I think we need uh, we need to make sure that no one wrongly loses a place at university. Um, but as well as that, as you say, Bradley, um, what if they've already um, kind of subscribed to their their second choice university, and what if the the university is already full? Uh, their first choice like how are they going to undo that I really I really don't know 
I think uh, financial support should also be made available for those who have had to defer, which I really don't blame them, considering how how they've been treated by their government. Uh, But overall, yeah, I absolutely think that Gavin Williams should should resign. I I think there's an element of this, and, you know, I've used that language over the last eight minutes we've been on, but I suppose some of the language we've used is almost let the Tories off the hook. You know, we've described it as a, as a as a disaster or, or a cock up, um, but to a very real degree, this was deliberate. You know, the, the Tories knew ahead of time what the impact of this would be. They they'd seen it happen in Scotland, um, they they knew they they must have known in advance um, how many students um, would roughly would be downgraded, um, and and they'd have known you know they'd have known the research on that about um, who was going to be most likely to be affected by it because there is a class element to this, isn't there? Um, the smaller cohorts um, where it wasn't possible to, to use previous year's averages because of the small class sizes um, were able to go off the teacher's printed grades. And now, of course, who who goes to schools where they've got small cohorts? Well, primarily, it's richer kids that go to private schools that get that. Um, so you know, the government would have known all of this. They'll have known that it would have um, affected a large number of students uh, unfairly in, in many cases. Um, and, and they'd have known there was a class element to that. And they just didn't care. They, they didn't care until um, public outcry forced them to. Um, and I, I, suppose, I suppose to some degree that that's um, on, on track with how they've approached the whole pandemic, really, isn't it? Uh, Callum, what, what, what do you think? Do you, do you think that the, the Tories were, were, were happy to, to see uh, you know, working class kids disadvantaged until it started to look awkward for their electoral prospects? Uh, well, no, I, I agree entirely with that. It's blatant classism. I mean, the, the, the line of explanation that came out from the Scottish case um, was that um, was basically saying that kids from uh, less well-performing schools uh, needed to be downgraded in order to make the results credible, right? So what does that say about what they think about kids? from those sorts of schools. It's not credible that they would get good results. You know, it's absolute nonsense. And it undermines as well, uh, as some people have talked about, faith in that system. You know, the idea is that everyone sits down, they do the they do the same tests, they go through the same system, and we'll see how they come out at the end. This is the essence of the liberal idea of equality of opportunity, right? Um, but the way they've now gone about this has completely undermined that. Nobody's going to know for sure, you know, what your what your grades were actually supposed to be because they, you know, they've they've said, oh, you can use teachers' estimations, and then they're not valid. You can use your, uh, if you're not happy with those, you can use your mock results. But in the mock results, mock tests, they're inconsistent. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's a complete shambles. And uh, you're right. I think that some people. Um, may well have rushed off to to go to different universities. I mean, um, to be fair, that's that is sort of how I ended up in Lincoln. Um, you know, I, I was uh, on in the mountains of Scotland back when I got my results. Um, someone had to go and pick them up for me. Um, and while I was waiting on a call for one of the one of the universities I actually wanted to go to. Um, I got a, a call from the University of Lincoln and they were so keen to have me. They they offered me a place right on the spot, which I, I accepted. So obviously, that was, for me, that was a happy accident. But um, 
but for other people, it's uh, you know it could be, consist of lost opportunities. Um, there are certain universities that specialize um, in certain things, including Lincoln, by the way. I know my partner came here primarily because it was one of the top two universities for bioveterinary science, uh, for instance. Um, and also apparently one of the, the top tier universities at the time for accountancy, somewhat less interestingly. Um, but uh, but no, it's um, yeah, it's a complete shambles. I don't expect him to resign, though. Um, 10, 15 years ago, I mean, he would have resigned last week. Um, but uh, I think this is a government where you know, they, they seem to have made this calculation that resigning doesn't doesn't really matter you know and it doesn't really do the uh doesn't really help the government at all in a few weeks time the our very complicit media will have moved on to something else um in the long run it might do them more harm of course the generation or there's a whole cohort of kids now who will remember when they are adults and when they're voting if not voting already then voting later on um they will remember this and hopefully correctly place the blame at the government responsible for, for screwing them over. Uh, and I hope by then they will have recovered as well. Um, but I don't expect him to resign, e even though he should. Yeah, I, I see some interesting things on Twitter about the, you know, the potential political engagement ramifications of this for, for a new generation of activists and for, for the Zoomers um, that are just coming into politics and coming into their own now. Um, people seem to be a bit split on this because others obviously drew parallels between this and, and tuition fees, um, which I suppose is is, is my generation. Uh, I think where where generations end and begin is always a bit blurry. Um, but you know, ten years ago, it, the, the the issue of the day for young people was tuition fees tripling and and this very strong sense of injustice that, that a generation of people were were being were being shafted by, by the government essentially. Um, but of course, many people said, you know, there, there might well have been um, marches and, and protests, and obviously in, in several places, including the University of Lincoln, um, there were occupations um, over the, the tripling of tuition fees. Um, but it, but it didn't necessarily sort of um, lead to a sea change in, in, in youth political engagement. And um, so I, I, some people are drawing parallels between those two and saying, okay, there might be a lot of young people that. Uh, are a bit peed off with with the Tory government, but that's not necessarily unusual for for younger generations anyway. And um, but it but it won't necessarily lead to 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 any new change in engagement. And um, but then there are rivers now after this announcement and this U-turn that are saying actually it's it, it's really good, it's really useful for for a, a new wave of activists. Their first proper political experience for many of them is actually a victory against the state. They they've actually won. Um, uh, you know they, they've gone out, they've protested, they've taken to social media. And they've actually won. Um, Callum Roper, what, what do you think? Could, could this potentially help radicalise um, a new wave of activists? I I think it could. Um, I know just from my experience as part of the Labour Society, we around this we were we launched a letter, an open letter that we were going to send to the University of Lincoln, uh, encouraging them to accept people on their predicted grades as opposed to the grades they were given under the system before the U-turn. Um, and we were getting a lot of positive responses from societies that you wouldn't expect to be political. You wouldn't expect them to be engaged in the political dialogue. You'd imagine they'd be quite neutral, not really bothered. But committees were very keen to get on board. And if that is echoed across 
young people, say the people that receive the grades or fellow students in university years above them or in different cohorts that are showing solidarity, then I think that's extremely positive. And I think you're, you're right to be saying that a victory against the state well, within five days or whatever it is, is, is fantastic. I think that's incredibly positive. And I think that maybe, hopefully, touch wood, that we'll be able to harness that, that momentum and that, that almost hunger to, to get more and more victories in order to create a positive movement as we come out of COVID and as we can meet together and talk better, um, sort of talk face to face um and and be able to engage with these these activists that have, have seen that victory and hopefully they'll be at the universities that they want to be and participating in their political environments individually yeah yeah absolutely fantastic work by by those teachers and, and students that, that were involved in the protests and, and have you know help help bring this to the attention of the public you know solidarity to them and well done mm. um I, I do think it, it's interesting. I think there's potentially lessons here for, for socialists and particularly young socialists that, that are trying to engage other young people in, in socialism. Um, in that I, I think we, we often, you know, we, li- we live in a society often where politics is a bit, a bit of a dirty word. And, and if people think you might be trying to do something political, it's sort of frowned on a bit. Um, but, you know, we've seen time and again that young people are, are willing to engage in political activity. But I think it's often around things that they might not, People might not always immediately think of political issues. So, so the A-level results, obviously there's political elements to that, but there's also just a sense of, of fairness and justice to that. You know, people are like, well, it's just not right what's happened. And so I suppose for, for, for some people, depending on how you frame things, for them, it almost goes beyond politics. You know, sorry, I know that's the Extinction Rebellion slogan. I'm, I'm not trying to draw a parallel there. Um, and I think we saw the same thing with the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, we saw a lot, you know, any protests I went to in Lincoln, there were large numbers of young people um, engaged in those protests. And I think for people of our generation, well, most of them, obviously we still have some racists in our, in our generation, but, but for most young people I know, the, the idea that you would treat someone differently or value someone's life differently because the colour of their skin is just, is just a bizarre and, and outmoded, you know, concept. Um, so again, the issue of Black Lives Matter, well, of course, we're going to support that, almost goes beyond politics for, for maybe people in our generation. So I, I suppose my question is, you know, is there a way for us to do that about issues to do with socialism? You know, can, can we make bread and butter socialist issues? Can we frame those and, and organise around those in a way that makes the points just seem so obvious? Why would I not go out to a protest about that? Why would I not um, sign a petition about that? I don't know if anyone wants to jump in on that. Callum Roper, you've got your hand up, I think. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer that question. And I'll, I'll, I want to talk about um, moving beyond what people consider to be traditional politics. Um, in terms of framing the debate to make people realise that the word socialist and to identify as a socialist is very much in line with a lot of these people's views is going to be a struggle for us because it's such a dirty word in politics. Um, it's been framed by the media as being some sort of traitor, as being some sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of veiled evil from within. But actually, so many people, as we've seen, even just through lockdown, are fighting on, on many socialist values, you know, values of equality, of equality of opportunity and outcome. People looking for a fairer system and, and looking at the NHS and saying, that actually, this is fantastic. This is something we need to protect and something we need to grow and make it even better. 
Um, so I think that if we can change how we frame it, I don't know how we would do it, but starting to make people realise that what they're saying is actually something that's socialist and not being scared to say that and not being scared to say that I am a socialist, I believe in these ideals, I believe in a better society with this system. That's one way forward. Um, and, and in terms of framing that, I, I think that what we're seeing is that we need to move beyond what is considered traditional politics, as I, as I alluded to. And that means it's not just one person on a stage to, giving a speech. It's not just a small clique of people that hold all the, all the levers of power. Actually, I think we need to see this new phase of politics on mass politics, whether it be online, whether it be going out on marches, whether it be grassroots movements. I think that that's the new politics and we need to harness that and we need to realise this is the way forward. This is the way to make change. This is the way to make a difference because so many people have come out in outrage against what the government has done around A-levels. Imagine if we can do that on so many more issues, whether we can do that on issues of injustice in our society, as we've seen with the Black Lives Matter movement, whether we can do that for our NHS, hopefully once this lockdown has been lifted. And as we saw in Lincoln just last week. So I think that there's so much that we can be doing and so much we can be harnessing. But I think this new era of politics is upon us, this new phase of politics beyond just the elite telling us what to do and we following willingly. Ollie, what do you think of that? Uh, I think you're absolutely spot on there, Callum. Um, I think it is about uh, framing uh, socialism in, in a new light. I think it's a matter of education, largely, um, and awareness. Mm. Because when you take away the the two party system and you take away, uh, you know, the the red versus blue, and you you boil it down to just pure policies, um, I think a lot of people would be surprised at how many socialist values they stand for, as you were saying, Callum. Um, I think a lot of it is to do with with the media. I think um, I think we need media reform in to to make sure that public opinion is 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 not the opinion of of these these uh media corporations which are in the pocket of the government um yeah i, I think uh it would be a, a great thing if we could frame that the, these issues in a new light and uh and move past um the association of, of Labour or the association of Tory or, or something like that. And I, I suppose, you know, if we're, if we're talking about having difficult conversations with the public, this brings us on to our, our next story, the other big story that's dominated uh, the news cycle this week, um, in, in which perhaps the public are less sympathetic than they may have been to the plight of A-level students. Um, and that is the, the, the new moral panic of migrants. We, we've come full circle and, and we're back. Um, it seems like in 2014 again, and, and we're, we're worried about uh, migrants coming into the country again. Um, I, I think a lot of this was kicked off, correct me if I'm wrong, by Nigel Farage. Um, he's got a new hobby now. He, he has a walk by the sea and, and films to see if he can see any um, any dinghies coming in. Um, he, he started putting up videos on his on his Twitter channel. Um, I, I suppose we've all got to get through lockdown somehow, haven't we? Um, uh, that I think that sort of kicked off, or at least helped kick off this this new round of I'm only going to call. I'm going to call it a moral panic, and I, I probably will be quite derogatory about it throughout, to be honest, um, because I'm just fed up that in 2020 we're still here, and, and and this is the situation. 
Um, but but essentially, yes, there there, there have been has been a, a renewed focus on migrants um, crossing crossing the English Channel. Um, m- many in in dinghies and and, and boats that, that probably aren't brilliantly safe, and and it's led to some quite bizarre reporting actually as well. Um, you know, it, I I don't know if any of you seen it, but BBC I think it was BBC News um, reporters amongst other outlets, you know, live filming you know migrant boats coming across the channel, um, and and sort of pulling up alongside them and, sh- and shouting and asking them questions and and almost sort of commentating on it, um, you know, live as it happens. It, really sort of i i think quite bizarre and sadistic sort of tv um uh, to watch um does anyone want to jump in on this what you know are are we making a fuss about nothing here it, it is you know what, what's going on who wants to jump in I'll, I'll jump in on the news coverage I, i've seen that that sort of coverage as well and, and it's it's sensationalizing refugees because they know it gets attention from the public they know it causes outrage it, uh, even the BBC now are going into that territory of just looking for the news stories and the and the way of framing things that cause the most interaction and the most clicks and the most outrage amongst the public. And I think that it's it's disgusting. Uh, it's taking advantage of people's situation um, and basically not really making money out of it. But you know they're getting the coverage and they're getting the attention from it. Um, and I think that the actions of the likes of Farage is is just it's ridiculous it's it's disgusting it's it's again taking advantage of people in a perilous situation they've crossed a continent to get here they faced so much danger to their the, to their lives to the lives of their family to the lives of their children and we're just in this country we seem to be either outraged or amused by it so many people don't seem to really care and and I'm I'm just it's beyond me that we're still having this debate. I I know that it's been stoked up um, by apparent rising in uh, refugees crossing the channel. But actually, I think the problem is, is that we're then turning around and saying, well, it's not actually that bad here because it's it's worse in France. They're more racist than we are. That's not the way forward. We should be proud when we get there of saying that we're not a racist country. We're a country that accepts migrants. We accept refugees and we give them a home, a safe place to be. And we give them somewhere where they can succeed and they can contribute to society. Callum, what you, you want to come in on this? Yeah, I think that's very good. And and I know that um, the, 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 the media often uses things like a flood. They're trying to, they, they, they occasionally use the word invasion. Or call them invaders. I think it's completely disingenuous. Um, and bear in mind as well. I, I, I did look this up in a in a conversation with um, uh, someone who had very different views on than me on this issue. Um, but there were when the at the height of the refugee crisis, i.e., you know, when the Syrian civil war had really begun to turn violent well it was always violent but but you know when isis uh, started to was on the rise around the time of the libyan civil war in the middle of this last decade that's just gone when the the um when the calais jungle if you remember that was closed that's where all of the refugees who were struggling to get into the uk because we were procrastinating with their paperwork or didn't want to let them in for whatever reason there were about 8,000 of them at that point. 
8,000 people next to a population of 60 million. And bear in mind as well that, um, that and, so, and then that was the peak. And bear in mind that most of those people are young and able-bodied people, you know, economically. So there would have been, there were teachers and doctors and nurses and all sorts of skills within that number as well. Um, there's no disadvantage to having refugees in this country. You know, even if you even if you have not an ounce of of compassion for that, you know, there isn't uh, for for the for the plight of these people. There's no disadvantage to letting re uh, refugees come in and 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 come. You know, we lost. We just lost forty to sixty thousand people. You know, in, in a pandemic. What's eight thousand? You know. 8,000 people who mostly have links to the UK, links to the UK usually meaning family. You know, all of the, the, the arguments that, that, that this country is somehow full or these, need, these people need to repel, it's absolutely disgusting and completely illogical. Um, and it needs, to be, it needs to be fought. I would say not just on, on those numbers, but probably, um, as Callum pointed out, by saying these are productive members of society let's give them a home a job somewhere to you know that's that's a, a good thing that's going to help the rest of society as well yeah and i mean it, particularly i think on on the age thing you know a lot of these people are, are going to be quite quite young people you know with a whole life of work ahead of them potentially although i also do get a bit frustrated with that in that I, I understand why the left frames it often in this way in, in terms of the net benefit to society that might want to bring and it's true the vast majority will um but isn't there also something a bit depressing and frustrating about having to make those arguments you know ha having to try and add, add some sort of justification for the existence of a human life it, it it's really frustrating and that's where we get that you know we, we have to focus on economic benefits to try and convince people you know you, you've got people on national tv suggesting we we, we let these boats sink in the channel or in the mediterranean you know it, it yeah we, we have to employ sort of narrow economic calculations and the tax returns and all the rest of it to convince some people to let these people live it, it, it's really frustrating that's where we're at in, in 2020 and um, but but um it, you know a lot of these people are going to be quite young and potentially got you know decades of, of work ahead of them europe's going to be an aging population well it is an aging population and it's going to have an aging crisis in, in the next few decades um, there's going to be a, a large number of, of, of pensioners, you know, far more um, than we, we have currently, and, and there's not going to be enough people to to be doing the work. You know, if we if we shut our borders as many people want, not be enough people to care for them, not be enough people to to produce, um, you know, productivity in the economy, to produce goods and to produce taxes to to fund their pensions. So actually, we we need we we should be welcoming with open arms young people from other countries coming to to live and work here. Um, and you know, and to start families here, we should absolutely be welcoming that with open arms, and we'll be crying out for them in a few decades' time. Ollie, do you want to come in on this? Yeah, sure. Uh, I think you're spot on with what you're saying there. Um, I mean, in in terms of treatment of Im immigrants, I, I didn't think it could get much worse after um, Theresa May's treatment of the Windrush generation when she was Home Secretary. Uh, but the way uh, Pretty Patel kind of speaks of immigration is is pretty abhorrent, really. Um, in my opinion, I think the, the Tories are getting a, a free pass to scapegoat the most vulnerable, uh, which has been enabled and amplified uh, by deliberate like media sensationalism um, to distract away from their economic and social failures. 
because uh, if you remember at the end of last week, um, picture this, if you will, uh, the government quietly drops 1.3 million COVID tests from their England tally. They spend 150 million pounds on unusable PPE equipment and intentionally downgrade a generation of young people's grades, which are based on their postcode, which has now been reversed, admittedly. But then it was like, but look, a, a migrant invasion off the coast of South England, call the Navy and blow them out of the water. I think I think the Tories have perfected the art of, of distraction. And I think it's a, it's a really sad thing that these transparent uh, diversion tactics actually have worked and have done for decades. I think in terms of um of whether whether this should be viewed as economically viable or just as human lives i think you're absolutely right with what you're saying there's a there's a deep-rooted connection um and a disconnection sorry uh, in our in our society and a, a distinct lack of empathy for migrants um migrants aren't your own enemy i would say and, and corrupt politicians are which is something um zara sultana which is uh the labor uh, MP for Coventry South said, which I think uh, resonates quite a lot. Yeah, and I, I think you're right to highlight, you know, the, the things the Tories have gotten away with just in the past week is is, is outrageous. Um, and I, I think, to be honest, for me, the, the, the December 2019 general election sort of was when I really started to clock onto this and, and think, you know, what do we have to do to, to get it through to people? What's going on? And, and, and the things the Tories are responsible for. You know, if you if you look back to, you know, all the way to 2010 and the coalition government, think of all the things that they've done over the last 10 years and the lives they've damaged or ended. And, and, and you know, I was listening to Navarra Media um, the other day and, and, and Aaron Bastani on there was sort of saying, you know, doesn't matter the, to- the Tories will get it they'll get away with it again you know there'll be a bit of outrage in in the media for for a few days um and the- then they'll get over it the new cycle will move on the Tories won't be damaged by it you know look you look at the whole Dominic Cummings fiasco the public were outraged by it they were furious by it um wait a few days fly low it's blown over he's still there he's still in his position and um, he's still he's still wielding the power that he had before um and you know what how do we begin to to really properly hold them to account over this? I think partly the opposition's got some questions to answer. I don't know if either of the Callums want to come in on this, but but over the migrant crisis, where's where's the Labour Party? We're not there apparently. That, that's the simple answer. I think we're uh, at the moment we're so one dimensional with our approach to certain matters. Um, I think we're trying to appeal to such a broad church that actually we're we're ending up we're we're ignoring migrants we're ignoring migrants that are having warships plowed at them in the channel simple as i think that we failed to address the argument and actually take the right side i think history will look back at this this uh this time in our history and say that where was the labor party in 2020 when migrants were in the channel being mowed down because i know jeremy corbyn would speak up against it and I'm not going to sort of dig up the argument of, well, Corbyn versus Starmer, but I know he would. I really want to see Keir Starmer taking a stand and saying that these people making that fundamental argument that they deserve the chance to make a better life. And Britain is the place where they can do that. And the Labour Party is the party of working class people, no matter their race, their religion, where they come from. We're the party of working people. And if these people are coming to this country 
They're working class, they're refugees, they deserve our support as a Labour Party. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it, as in the US with, with Trump, um, that it, it looks like Trump might be in trouble in the polls, um, but I, I certainly don't think we should be writing him off yet, um, given what happened last time. Um, but, but you know, a lot of commentators are saying that there is, he's losing perhaps a lot of people that might, may have voted for him last time, but there is still quite a, a depressingly large chunk of the population in the US um, that that are diehard Trump supporters and, and they nothing at this point, given everything he's done over the last four or five years and everything in his in his past as well, if they've not been convinced to switch them in, it, it's not going to happen now. Um, and and you know they're they're a, a depressingly large chunk of the population that uh, they are immutable for him and and he can guarantee he can support them. You know, there's that quote from him, isn't it, that he he can walk down the Fifth Avenue and shoot someone in the face and people would still vote for him. I think that might actually be true with some of these people. Um, I think Boris and the Tories have got a similar uh, uh, block in, in the UK electorate as well, um, where no matter what fuck-ups they make throughout the COVID crisis, no matter whose child's future they ruin, um, you know, no, no matter what these sort of corrupt scandals come out about you know, bank, banker friends and donors you know, getting rich off a, off, a, off a global pandemic, there's, there's a chunk, a depressingly large chunk of the electorate that will not budge from the Conservative Party base. Um, I, I think under Corbyn, um, the Labour Party had a, had a similar chunk that, you know, were, were sort of on, on the left and, and progressives and, and they believed in, in a lot of the Corbyn Project's policies. And, you know, I think we had that same sort of base. Um, at end of Starmer, I don't know if we do. I, I don't know what our immovable base is anymore, particularly since some of those red wall seats have gone as well. What is the Labour Party's immovable uh, sort of chunky electorate that, that no matter what will always vote Labour? I, I don't know if... I suppose there are people out there like that, but I think it's a receding and diminishing chunky electorate. Callum what? I don't know if you want to come in on that. Well, I, I mean, from a purely democratic point of view, is it really healthy for a democracy to have uh, an immovable um, chunk of the electorate? Um, if anything, you know... That sort of thing leads to the sort of complacency that saw us lose um, millions of votes during the Blairite era, didn't it? Um, so, uh, and that has to be borne in mind now that those votes can always go away and they're not immovable at all. Um, I was just thought I'd actually look up, I thought I'd Google um, Labour, Keir Starmer refugees and Labour Party refugees. Um, Obviously, there's uh, some stuff from um, uh, Sarah and Sultana, but for the most part, it's from December um, or from previous manifestos. There's very, very little uh, contemporary stuff from the Labour Party, unfortunately. Um, the last thing from Keir Starmer is uh, from the 20th of December last year. Uh, Kia says that the Tories' decision to drop the commitment to unaccompanied child refugees post-Brexit is a moral disgrace. Uh, the government should scrap uh, new clause 37, retweet if you agree. That's a great statement, but as I say, um, it was seven or eight months ago. Um, so I do think that we need to be uh, doing better than that. Um, really, I, I mean, they keep saying that the election is several years away, um, what have they got to lose by by standing up for people now and demonstrating that, okay, 
you might not think that uh, refugees are worth saving, but do you know what? We do. And actually, I think that because humans are not necessarily partisan, you know, they're not as uh, uh, strongly partisan as perhaps we are, um, even if, and I have known plenty of people with very conservative views, will vote for candidates who they believe are principled and honest. And if Keir Starmer wants to do that and win over the electorate, that's what he's got to do. Remember that we lost those Red Bull seats um, because of the Brexit election, um, where fundamentally all of that good feeling that we had from the 2017 general election was lost because people perceived the party to be um, dithering and not really very honest or upfront about Brexit. Whatever their views were, it, we, our, our position was seen as fluctuating and uncertain, whereas the Tories had a very, very strong line, get Brexit done. And that same issue applies to refugees. If we stand up and do the right moral thing now, then it will pay dividends down the line. If you want, again, even if you want to be very cynical and think about the electoral politics of it, aside from all of the moral basis, you know, that it's just the right thing to do. There's no reason not to do it. Yeah, I think you're spot on there, Callum. And I think, yeah, I, I think the, the problem is, is if you believe in something in politics and, and you want to see it happen, you, you, you've got to stand up and fight for it because, you know, this sort of idea of, oh, well, you know, really as a party, we do believe in this, but we're not going to talk about it or, or we're going to stay quiet about it because the electorate's not quite there yet. Um, and, if, and if we talk about it, um, you know, it, it might lose its votes and, and, and we might come across as too radical or, or, or whatever. You know, I think firstly that's really insulting to the electorate. You know, you, you should, as a, as a political party and as a politician, be honest with the electorate and and quite clearly state where you stand on issues and, and explain to them why. So I think you know this sort of you know fudgy sort of oh well maybe we really believe in this but we're, we're not going to talk about it too much so we don't lose any votes. I think it's just fundamentally insulting to the electorate. But it also doesn't work. It makes things harder to change in the future if you've allowed the rhetoric to be set by the right on immigration. For decades as we have and um, if you then ever try and come out and, and, and tackle that at some point further down the line maybe when you're in government it's gonna be really bloody hard to do because you've allowed the the media landscape to be dominated by negative imagery imagery of, of migrants for decades and um, so in as a long-term strategy it's absolutely pants it just doesn't work and um, ollie you want to come in on this yeah sure um what i was going to say was um I think it's intentional vagueness, to be honest. And my, my personal opinion on this is I actually don't know what Starmer stands for. Like, I don't know what Starmerism is. I know what Corbynism is, uh, to come back to Callum Roper's point. Um, I just think he'll, he'll, this is probably a very biased view. I think he will literally do anything or say anything if he thinks that it will get him a shot at the next election. Um, yeah. A sort of a, a return to sort of Blair-esque sort of positioning, you think? Yeah, I, I do believe that. I do. Um, to come back to um, to come back to the 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 situation with with migrants and immigration. Uh, what I was going to say was, um, despite uh, waging war and arming dangerous regimes in in Middle Eastern countries for decades. The UK doesn't even take its fair share of migrants compared to most European countries. 
Um, I've got the statistics here from um, the as- asylum applications in 2019. Uh, and Germany was 165,000. France was 129,000. Uh, Spain was 118,000. And then the UK was just 49,000. So, so the idea of we're being overrun by immigrants and there's an invasion going on, I think is, is completely preposterous. And as we were, we've said a few times, it's just media sensationalism. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Um, I, I think we, we've sort of come to an actual end there, unless anyone wants to, to add anything else. Okay. Um, <laughs> that's, that's me told. Uh, so I suppose um, it's a goodbye from the 1201 team. Um, we, we, we've ended today um, on a victory for A-level students, um, which I think is fantastic. Uh, sadly, not a victory for migrants at the moment. Um, their struggle continues. Um, the, the racism endemic across many parts of the British establishment um, continues. Um, but solidarity to those that are fighting it and working away at it. Um, it's a goodbye from me, Bradley, um, and Callum. Goodbye. goodbye. Good evening. Yeah, which, whichever one of you wants to see. <laughs> goodbye, from, goodbye from both Callums. It feels a bit weird saying your surname, so I, I tried not to, and the one time I didn't, it bit me in the ass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a goodbye from Ollie as well. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe. Yeah, uh, stay safe, everyone, until our next podcast. Um, goodbye.